Hello, folks, and welcome to your monthly Ask an Attorney webinar. I am not the attorney. I am Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine, and I have Tom Grieve, noted criminal defense attorney and former state prosecutor, here with the Ask an Attorney. You get to send your questions in. We will answer them to the best of our ability. Right answers cost more. So um, I, I should point out, this is not legal advice. Uh, you have to call him and pay by the hour to get legal advice, but uh, we can answer your questions and Let's jump right into it, Tom. Let's uh, do you it. Know. Yeah. Um, when you enter a bar with a sign posted, no firearms, how do you secure your weapon in a vehicle? Hmm. Well, ideally, no one's watching you unload or anything like that. Otherwise, you just made your car and perhaps even yourself a big target for yeah. you know, a burglary, for a robbery, for something like that. Um, and act, you know, just side fun, fun fact for you kids out there. So, Kevin, what's the difference between a robbery and a burglary? Because we see, I see people confuse this all the time. Yeah. A, a burglary is is uh, entering into a dwelling and to take stuff and take it away. A robbery is one person taking another from, uh, taking property from another person. So. so you can be robbed, but your home can be burgled. burgled. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear people confuse this all the time. So yeah. you know, we just want to enrich your lives down the lens here. So I thought, just kind of you know, spice it up, throw that in there. But so number one, I, I would make sure that nobody's watching you do this. All right. Number two, you're securing in a safe, out of uh, you know, out of view location. Ideally, sure, it's in, it's locked up. There's lots of different safes and safe options you can get to make sure that can happen. But at a minimum, um, obviously, there's no kids or anything like that in the car. The car is locked. Don't forget to lock your car. Nobody sees you. Yeah, absolutely. I would prefer that you put your firearm in another locked container inside your car um, and lock it in the trunk or someplace that is out of sight and out of the way. And and Tom is absolutely right. Don't be doing this out in you know in public and in full view of everybody else that's, that's going on out there. Um, your your firearm is for the purposes of legality in the state of Wisconsin locked up and away from people if it's in a soft-sided zippered case or something like that in your vehicle and your vehicle is locked that is technically secured but you know how easy it is to get into a car so right. um, let's make that a little bit more difficult for the bad guys to uh, get away with the right and, and I have seen cases too by the way where if you're at a mall or some sort of popularly posted location where bad guys are watching for people to turn around, you know, see the sign, turn around, because they know exactly what you're doing at that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it's pretty rare, but I have seen a couple cases like this. So you've got to be careful to not telegraph what's going on. Um, yeah. You know, don't assume that nobody's paying attention to what you're doing because the wrong type of people might be. Yeah, and if you're paranoid like me and you turn around, then you get in the car and you drive to you a drive. parking yeah. spot. And yep. you, yeah. Right, so right. we're going we're to do that doubly good on yep. top of there. So will a security camera help in defending yourself if you have used deadly force to protect yourself? Well, it probably isn't going to keep you alive, I guess. Let's put it that way. It's no substitute for education, training, uh, or, or the right tools on hand there. Correct. We can say that as a, as a starter. It's going to be a witness. And it's going to be a witness to everything that, that, that took place, whether it's good or bad or something different. If you screwed up and did something bad, um, it's not, it's not going to help you, period, in that sense. But if you did all the right things, if you, edu if you executed on your training, your experience, um, and you used your tools to survive and, and did so entirely within the means of the law, it's going to help you survive that next encounter, which is going to be the legal encounter following that physical uh, force encounter. And the one thing I will say is a security camera will provide a single perspective. So the more cameras with the more angles and the more perspectives, the better off you're going to be. So. Um, it, the, the single camera just shows one point of view and one perspective and, and may limit what people are seeing and they may interpret that 
differently. So um, it's a, yeah, it, it's a witness. It records what happened, um, but that what happened is still open to interpretation for people who are dealing with the law. So that's why. And a couple quick things is, is you know, a bit of a seasoned voice here from the criminal justice system. Not all security cameras are real. A lot of them are, are, believe it or not, just fake attachments. The ones that are real are not necessarily in working order. They could be very grainy. They could be painted or pointed in weird positions or something like that. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had a client say, well, don't worry, there's a security footage there for whatever their case might be. And first off, these folks are going to be, these business owners, generally very uncooperative working with a criminal defense attorney. Just, just by the way, in case you had any doubts about that, let me clear them up for you, all right? So very hard for us to get our hands on just by schmoozing with them or anything like that. And sometimes, like here in Wisconsin, criminal defense attorneys are the only type of attorneys where I cannot issue my own subpoena. In other words, I have to draft up a subpoena, bring it to a judge, have the judge review it in whatever time they feel is appropriate. Hour, week, month, right, you get the point. And then once and if they decide, they decide to sign that, then I can go ahead and execute on that. Hopefully law enforcement will have gathered that information, hopefully, and if you're in a force-on-force -force encounter, I really hope that they've, they've gone ahead and looked around for cameras and gathered that. And they often will. In fact, they always have um, in force-on-force -force encounters. But if you're in a traffic situation or something like that, they may not be. So I guess, Jeannie, my point to you is, look, camera's good, assuming that you did everything right, which I hope you do, and hopefully that's why you're here, to learn what's right. But don't assume that it's all captured and perfect there. Um, at the end of the day, you're going to have to be your own witness as well. Uh, this one comes in anonymously, just asking, uh, we have what's called stand your ground. What exactly does that mean? So sure. let's go over that one again. Stand your ground. So very generally, keep in mind, check your local listings on what the laws might be for self-defense in your particular place, right? But generally speaking, if you're facing a deadly threat, you can use deadly force. This may be expressed differently in different states, like here in Wisconsin. If you're in reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm, then you can use deadly force, right? Stand your ground means that you do not have a duty to retreat, all right? So a duty to retreat means that before you can use that deadly force, you have to have exhausted all retreat options. So if you have an opportunity to get away, to run away, to whatever it is, you have to have done that before you're okay to use any kind of deadly force. So stand your ground states theoretically kind of resolve that gray area of maybe you could get away, maybe you couldn't. Um, maybe a jury's thinking about, well, he could have left even if they were never told about it. Um, juries do weird things, by the way, all right? So hopefully it will resolve that gray area um, to make it quite clear that, look, if you believe he could have used deadly force, then we're done here. That's it for affirmative defense. If we're okay, then we're okay, rather than introducing some of those extra questions, which can happen. And standard ground doesn't change the elements of the use of force. Correct. It just changed what you need to do prior to. It really just eliminates the duty to retreat. Now this is different than castle doctrine, which can kind of change some of those elements because castle doctrine creates the presumption that if the triggering criteria for castle doctrine has taken place, like somebody has broken into your home or is in the process of breaking your home, as an example, and you're inside, right? Then it creates a presumption generally that, okay, I am in that reasonable imminent fear of death or great bodily harm, as it would be said in Wisconsin. Check your local listings. But again, it creates a presumption that you can use that deadly force. Anytime you hear that P word, if you're, if you're new to the videos, what I like to say is it's also followed by the R word. It's rebuttable presumption. So just because somebody broke into your house, it creates a presumption that doesn't mean that law enforcement or prosecutors may not gather evidence and still prosecute a case against you on the fact that, look, 
Yeah, it creates a presumption, but you saw that they were a Girl Scout and they came in through the open front door asking to sell you cookies. I mean, horrible example, I realize that. But I'm trying to Especially pick something. this time of year. <laughs> I'm trying to pick something from the extremes so you guys understand that it's not a license to kill. It's castle doctrine, guys. It's, it's not as black and white as you think. Thank you very much. Um, another <coughs> anonymous question. Uh, I have a 380 pistol. Is it okay for me to use alternating hollow points and solid bullets in a defense situation? And I, I want to kind of go off on this one a little bit before I hand it off to you. Um, my first question is why? Why would you do that? Um, uh, solid point, full metal jacket ammunition is not truly effective for self-defense. Um, hollow points are the best choice for self-defense. Um, hollow points are frangible ammunition. And honestly, you have a 380 pistol. That is a perfectly adequate self-defense cartridge, okay? Um, people argue about that all day long, but there is no self-defense cartridge out there, handgun cartridge, that provides you that Hollywood lightning bolt stop that you're talking about. So. Um, Use good quality hollow points because with a 380 or a 9mm or a 22 round nose, you might get a pass-through shot and that bullet will keep going and you're responsible for that. For that. Um, I, I don't know why you would want to alternate. I would, I would just use a whole bunch of 380 hollow points if you think that um, your 380 is, is not powerful enough so you're going to shoot more times, then you want to you know, put more and bigger holes into this person to reduce their blood pressure. Um, the, yeah, it's, from a legal standpoint, are you, are you as an attorney gonna say why? No, why I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna say go ahead and do that. I get, you know, look, and I've seen this question, mm -hmm. you're talking about barrier, you know, defeating a barrier, like, like a windshield or something like that, of mm -hmm. mixing it up, and I've heard people talk about this and talk about that. Look, guys, if you're buying reliable the yes. self-defense ammo. And by the way, there's been a wave of really nice 380 uh, self-defense ammunition just introduced in the last month or so, or yeah. announced within the last month yeah. or so. I won't mention any brands here, but there's been there's some fantastic leaps forward in technology. Um, a lot of this stuff is doing a pretty darn good job of defeating windshields and so forth. This isn't the hollow points where you look at it or throw a cheese sandwich at it and it's going to blow up and fall over like maybe 20 years ago or something like that, where either it was on one end of the spectrum or the other, they've really got this stuff dialed in. I would, I would not want to do that. And besides, if you're trying to shoot through a windshield or something like that, a lot of the, the, uh, you know, the anti-shatter windshields, mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're, you know you can stack one hole on top of the next hole, it's not going to serve the point you're intending to serve. Just get the best hollow point ammunition, ensure that it runs in your firearm. Yeah, that's what that's, I'd say. That's, that's the best advice out there. So. Is the bar higher when attempting to protect a stranger from harm than yourself? Bar's not higher, but the facts are more complex because at the end of the day, defense of third person, yeah. it's the exact same facts. So in other words, if somebody else is facing a deadly force situation, then you can use deadly force to protect them. But keep mm -hmm. in mind, are you protecting the good guy? Are you protecting the bad guy yeah. who's defending himself now from the good guy? Or defending is the wrong word, but yeah. Is, yeah. is now engaged with the good guy, right? So if you choose to involve yourself, uh, you gotta be really careful that you have all the facts and information right because you will be prosecuted if you don't. Right, and again, you have to ask yourself, what are you willing to risk for this stranger, this person that you don't know, that you haven't met before, and do you have all of the facts of what's going on? Like Tom mentioned, you come around the corner and two people are fighting, and you decide to help one of them, you don't know what started this fight or, or what's right. going on, so. Um, all right. I am an older vet with past wounds that make me unable to defend myself as I am used to. 
In some parking lots, mostly at night, I have been a little bit apprehensive. Can I keep my firearm in my hand, not generally visible, while returning to my car if I feel unsafe, or do I have to wait for confrontation to take it out? Um, I, I'm gonna say don't just be walking around with a gun in your hand, okay? That's a, a really good way to uh, get a visit from the local police um, if, if you're just walking around with a gun in your hand, Tom? Right, well, I mean, and, and look uh, to the gentleman who asked this question, you know, first and foremost, of course, thank you for your service. Um, if anybody does see you carrying a firearm, you are making yourself a target for robbers, for thieves, for things like that, because firearms, uh, again, former state prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, I can assure you, it's one of the most targeted things that bad guys are trying to get their hands on, okay? So it's something that you have to be careful about. Is You may be discouraging some people, you may be enticing others. Now, that said, you said it's not generally visible, and I'm picking on generally there, because I'm an attorney, it's what I do, but I get what you're saying, um, I think that you're creating more issues insofar as if you're, you're drawing, you're clearing leather, so to speak, so it's outside your holster and you're carrying it, you know, disguised or something. You've tied up one of your hands. You, I mean, you, you've... I get where you're coming from. I guess my suggestion first and foremost is if you're in a parking lot at night uh, that you feel apprehensive in, don't go there. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the fact that maybe things happen and you gotta go make that emergency whatever retail run at 10 o'clock at night. Generally speaking, don't put yourself in a situation where you, you foreseeably have to draw a firearm out uh, to protect yourself. Um, but keep in mind, there's brandishing laws, there's disorderly conduct laws that are out there. There's a lot of ways where you could find yourself at the receiving end of, uh, of some police charges. So you gotta be careful. All right, thank you. Um, am I legally justified in pulling a pistol from my holster and holding it at the low ready if I'm surrounded by three or more people who want to, and this is in quotes, jump me? Um, you know what? There's a disparity of force there. Um, you can threaten to use violence, threaten to use force to stop, um, uh, what is the term in Wisconsin? An, an unlawful interference? Un right, right. An unlawful interference? Right, right. You got that. You got that. Look at that. Uh, yep. Smart. Smart. Um, yeah, and, and at that point, do you want to draw your gun out if you're surrounded, you know, um, fighting off three people? Somebody might get hold of your gun hand or your gun. Um, there's lots going on in here, but the question was legally justified, so I'll hand it to you. <laughs> Great. So, I mean, look, at the end of the day, this is, I think, to an aggressive prosecutor, it's going to be a gray area question, all right? Marco, I understand where you're coming from. All right, and if I'm just walking through a parking lot at night and three guys come out and it's clear that they're surrounding me and their intentions are bad, I'm not saying that I'm not gonna draw a firearm, just to be emphatically clear. That is arguably escalating the situation and not doing so in the means that, that you're in the wrong, it's just now maybe one of them draws a firearm, the guy behind you. I mean, it's a no-win situation and I've, I've seen and heard of cases where prosecutors have charged people um, for, for doing that. So I'm sympathetic to you. I'm saying that you're gonna have to make your own call on whether or not it's gonna be appropriate. Keep in mind, I don't know the laws in your state, um, wherever, whatever state you're in, Marco. Um, I think that you may be forced to, depending upon the circumstances. I'm not saying that you always should, but likewise, I'm saying that if you get the wrong prosecutor, it would not surprise me if you were criminally charged. And let me be emphatically clear, I'm not endorsing those criminal charges against you. I'm not saying that's right, that's fair, that's just. I am saying that's life, all right? So um, I could entirely understand why you would 
draw your firearm. Uh, I would probably do that myself, um, but that's a very fact and law-specific situation. But yeah. again, I'm, that, don't be naive. You may be criminally charged for, for doing something that maybe 99% of us would do. Right, you'll have to be able to articulate exactly why you felt this was an imminent deadly threat. Pulling out that firearm escalates this to the use of deadly force, basically. You know, in some states, out there. some states and some prosecutors will view it that way. Yeah. And I, I realize, Marco, you were very specific in your question, and if you see our eyes tracking off camera, it's because we're, we're, I'm rereading your question. You said mm -hmm. low ready position. So I'm assuming you put that in there to be emphatically clear that you are not pointing at anybody. I mm -hmm. get that. If you've met the same prosecutors I have, uh, you would understand why I am squeamish in my response of, Nothing's going to make you immune to criminal charges to include felonies at that point, depending upon which prosecutor you get, what are the political wins in that particular district attorney's office, what's been going on, all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that's fair. I am saying that's life. Alrighty. Moving on to Butch's question. My wife and I are grocery shopping in the meat section a long way from the checkout. Gunfire breaks out and knowing people are being shot, can I get my wife to safety and go to the shooting to possibly stop the threat? Sure you can, but do you want to? That's the, the, the right. true question. Yes, you can get your wife to safety, but are you certain that she is safe, first of all? And then if you are her only means of protection, are you going to leave her to go protect someone else? That, you know, a very important question. We don't know all the facts of what's going on. We just know they're shooting over there. And I'll put it to you this way. If they're shooting over there, and I'm not in my police uniform, and I'm over here, I'm pretty much gonna stay over here and take care of my family unless I really feel like I have to go over there. Right. You know? And you um, can't, you can't yeah. take of your, care of your family if you're dead. Right. Um, and that's not to try to say that you know, citizen heroes who do stop shooters when maybe they didn't have to get involved, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it doesn't always work out that way for them. And keep in mind, you also have to deal with, just like what we talked before, cases of mistaken identity. Maybe you get up there and you see two people exchanging gunfire. One of them is another lawful concealed carrier who's trying to save lives and stop a shoot. How do you know who's who? So I'm not saying that to say, never do this, Butch. What I am saying is you got to think through the variables because, right. trust me, a judge, a prosecutor, and a jury will. Right. So you got to be careful about that. And it's very good that you're thinking about this now, Butch. Right. Um, make this decision now before you hear the gunfire and you have to decide what it is that you want to do. And as, as Tom said, the variables are many. You need to think through, okay, you, you drop your wife off and move toward the sound of the gunfire. What if somebody comes in the back door and now your wife is there alone, unarmed, and you know, um, lots of different things could happen in that situation. And it doesn't so. mean that there's another butcher in the store who's going to see you shooting at the bad guy and think you're the bad guy as well. So mm -hmm. it's not only a matter of you making the wrong call, it's also you're trusting a lot of other people to make the right call as well. So again, I'm not trying to say awful decision, I am saying complicated decision, many variables. Alrighty. Does HR 218 exempt me from carrying in establishments with signs that say no firearms? Steve asks this question. HR 218 allows me as a law enforcement officer to carry my gun in places where I do not have a valid concealed carry permit. Um, I've, I've never come across this question before. No one has ever asked me. Um, I've, uh, I've carried my gun into some places without, um, uh, you know, signs that said no firearms, but I have my police credentials and I have my badge and I'm a way to go. I, I certainly don't have a clear answer for this, uh, not being a law enforcement officer mm -hmm. or having seen this prosecuted, uh, or at least nobody's come to me with this being mm -hmm. prosecuted. 
My, my suspicion, Steve, to try to steer you a little bit, and I apologize for the lack of the answer on this, is check your local listings on laws because many times if the firearm-free zones are created by state law, there may be exceptions under state law, maybe. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you're talking about a post office or something that's coming about through federal law, now we gotta be checking federal exceptions. So there's two different tracks to watch out for. Candidly, I don't know the answer for you. It's a great question. Um, but that will hopefully try to steer you a little bit better on. Yeah, and we can uh, put Bonnie on top of this one and, and maybe get a, a more in-depth look into HR 218 yeah. and uh, put that together on the laws page. Yeah. So, all right, what is the brightest flashlight you can legally put on your home defense rifle? Since identifying <coughs> your target is so important, well, I, I'm thinking he wants something that will literally burn retina. I mean, a laser. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be the, the brightest one. Um, I don't know if you're asking for a name brand or something like that um, or, or the type of flashlight. You know, we're looking up in the 1,000 lumen range now for 15, handheld 1500. Yeah, yeah, flashlights, like and, and that's really going to work. That chews through batteries pretty quickly when you're doing that. It also blinds your attacker, I mean, or temporarily, you know, disorients your attacker. Right. We don't want to say blind because as an attorney, you, you would... Uh, Call that into question. I had that lawsuit ready, right? It yeah, right, right there. It's blinded. like let him finish the yeah. sentence. Blinded. So um, you can you can get by with you know something in the 200 to 400 lumen range, and that will give you tons of light, and you should be able to identify anything in front of you that is under 400 lumens of light. And keep in mind, just speaking from personal experience, when you get to that lumen, when you get to those those heights, um, that light is reflective. <laughs> and yeah. it can go both ways. Yep. Particularly if you're in a house where you've got mirrors and things like that and you're accidentally sweeping a mirror, um, that might set you back too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm not trying to make light of it. This is just very real, you know? I would experiment if possible. You got some buddies, pool some cash together, buy some lights of different strengths, see what works for you, what makes sense. And my strong suspicion is you may not opt for that 1500 uh, lumen cannon or anything like that. My suspicion is you may want to back that yeah, off. Yeah, once you get up to the really, really bright lights, even shining them against a white wall, yeah. you're reflecting, um, um, can mess with your own eyes. So right. you need to be careful when you're using your lights. In home defense, would use of EDC hand weapon, I'm assuming that means handgun, be more or less defensible than a staged rifle or shotgun? Um, I'm gonna say no. The, you know, you, if you're allowed to use a firearm or you're allowed to use deadly force, if all of the elements are there that allow you to use deadly force, then no one is going to talk to you about which weapon you used as in deadly force. Um, the facts are the facts are the facts. But at the same time, let's be real here, right? If you're out there with an AR-15 with all your Punisher logos and this and that and saying, you know, die bad guy and whatever else, don't think for a moment that prosecutor maybe even law enforcement, and especially a jury, isn't gonna be taking a long, hard look at some of your motives. Now, I'm not saying that you've got Punisher logos and all that kind of stuff on there, okay? I'm just saying that there are lines we have to be careful of. But um, likewise, if you've got that stage AR-15, Punisher logo free, uh, that shotgun, Punisher logo free, and so forth, uh, at the end of the day, a good shoot is a good shoot is a good shoot. But I do think that some prosecutors may view it differently. I think that's probably illegal uh, insofar as it, it doesn't change the law just because you're using different firearms, at least assuming those firearms are not prohibited in your particular, in your particular state. As long as it's lawful to possess those magazines, the, hand, or, you know, the ammunition, the firearms, it doesn't change the law, but it will change the perceptions of the people who are using the law. So um, 
I realize that that's a very gray area answer. That is candidly the truth to it. Um, but at the end of the day, if you, if you get great education, followed up with top-notch training, and as a result, make a good shoot, God forbid, uh, I would much rather have an AR-15 on a good shoot than you know, a revolver on a bad shoot or something mm -hmm. like that. I'm trying to yeah. think of something pretty innocuous, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Carl is going to give us the shortest question with the longest answer um, <laughs> of the day. Carl wants to know, how do you know when to shoot? Um, well, uh, maybe I can just sum it up. When you think you're going to die, how's that? <laughs> you know? that um, that's definitely a good answer. Yeah, there we go. Um, Carl, you, you know when to shoot if you're facing an imminent deadly threat. Now, we can get into the legal terminology of this, and it might be fun for both of us, you know, because how do we define something as imminent? Well, the threat has to have a weapon and intent and a delivery system. Um, you know, so then how do we define the weapon and how do we define the tent? intent? Is it, is it expressed intent or is it implied intent? And we could go round and round with this. Tom likes that because he gets paid by the hour and, <laughs> and answer all of these questions. No but, mercy over here, yeah. right? <laughs> but how, how do you know when to shoot? Well, um, and, and as a law enforcement officer, preclusion comes into, into um, my vocabulary as well. It has to be the last thing I can do. So I have to have tried or reasonably believe that anything else would not work. So there's, there's lots of elements that go into determining when you're going to shoot, but if you're facing an imminent deadly threat, then, then you can use deadly force to stop the threat. I mean, when it's your, when it's your only option, and it's your only option because here's what it is. Um, I think that's really difficult because uh, oftentimes, you know, um, there, I think there's, there are clearly moments when you shouldn't shoot. I think that's usually pretty easy to, to articulate. Someone's running away, something like that, right? Um, and then there's moments where somebody's actively shooting at you, putting rounds down range, trying to kill you. That's another kind of clear cut. <coughs> but there's other times when maybe, okay, somebody's holding a firearm at the low ready. Um, I, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it can be difficult. And this is the reason why police are really put under a microscope a lot of times is because not every situation for use of force is black and white. Sometimes it's a little bit more gray, and it's tough to define those gray areas sometimes. And um, not to, to paraphrase a, Supreme, a U.S. Supreme Court famous saying, but sometimes, you know, you'll know it when you see it. Um, and for those of you who follow me on that, I'm not going to explain it for those of you who don't. It's a family show here. Um, but you just have to be really careful. Um, if you think that you're going to die, I think that that's a very good explanation, assuming that you have reasonable, yeah. assuming you're a reasonable person and you're not hysterical mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, it's, it's, that's a great question, Carl, but um, again, the laws are slightly different in each state. Be careful there's no kind of duty to retreat or soft duty to retreat, as I like to call it in certain places. Um, I would try to avoid pulling the trigger whenever possible, but at the same time, you got to be, you got to balance that against not dying. Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if, if you think to yourself, I have to shoot right now or I'm going to die, that's, that's a pretty good indication right. that you should shoot right now. Fox asks us, I've read in several magazines that too bright a light and white walls being a concern is misinformation and not true. And to use as bright a light as you can, as can be had. Is that true? Um, th there's going to be a lot of variables in this, in, in uh, um, the illumination of a light 
and how your eye works and different things like that, especially. And then the color, you know, how bright is the wall and how close are you to the wall? Lots of different things like that. I can assure you, Fox, if you take one of those 1500 lumen flashlights, you hold it in a dark room and you are two feet from a white wall and you turn it on, you will be blinding yourself with the reflection coming off of that wall. You will then be temporarily disoriented, not blinded. Not blinded. Coming back to Never that. blinded. That's right. You'll be temporarily disoriented. And how much time do you want to give up in that fight, you know, until you get your vision back and you can now understand what's going on around you? So um, if you're saying as big a light as can be had or as powerful a light as can be had, there's some hugely powerful lights out there. There's also some bezel technology, the reflective cone inside the flashlight, which will take a 60 lumen light and provide you all the light you're going to need just with a really well done bezel. So there's much more to this than just saying, get the biggest, brightest light you can, because there are some huge lights out there that will legitimately allow you to search 300 yards out into a field. You don't want that when you've got a 25 foot room in your house. Right, and you know, and, and I definitely have a small collection of flashlights going on. I probably have about more than a half dozen, less than a dozen, like mm -hmm. pretty nice flashlights. Some of them are uncomfortably bright for me. That's me. Maybe you're different. Um, and for that matter, if using a super strong flashlight, if it's comfortable for your hand, which is another big variable, can you easily manipulate it with one hand? Um, there's lots of different variables in play here. Um, great. I, I could see it as an advantage, right? It's kind of like saying use the largest caliber that you can shoot well, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to talk you off that fox. My point is, Test it, find out what works for you. Different people have different sensitivities to sight and sound, and you just gotta figure out what works. Absolutely. Jason wants to know, our state allows us to have a firearm locked in a privately owned vehicle while on school grounds. If there were a threat during a school ball game and one were to retrieve their firearm from the vehicle and engage, is that going to cause an issue? Yes and or no. I mean, um, a legal issue for going onto school grounds with a firearm, Yes, you might be facing some discussion there, um, a moral or, or other issue. Um, you already escaped the situation. Now you brought a firearm back into the situation. Uh, is there someone there you want to protect? This is a, a tremendously complex situation. Um, so I'm going to give it to Tom. <laughs> great. Um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very complex, but it's a great situation. Unfortunately, kind of going back and echoing a little bit, maybe a little bit more concisely this time, something I brought up before is that you have very aggressive literalist prosecutors whose position is, if I can charge someone with a crime, and if I've got the facts to get the conviction, I will. And um, I, I think that's reasonably short-sighted. Uh, I think that there's a moral test that ought to become involved, which obviously your question speaks to. But Jason, we can't ignore the fact that there are people out there who think the way that I just described. And uh, it would be I'd, I would be misleading you and others to say that those people don't exist, ignore them. Um, likewise, I'm not gonna tell you morally how you should conduct yourself provided you're doing so within the scope of the law. Jason needs to make the best call for Jason within the scope of the law, but don't ignore the fact that there is a risk that you're gonna hit someone out there like this. Trust me, they're very real. Absolutely. All right, uh, an anonymous question came in. If you pull into your property and see someone in the act of committing a crime, May you pull out your weapon and confront them, or should you back off and call 911? Um, I would want more definition as to yeah. what type of crime. So they're smoking marijuana 
um, and you're going to pull out a gun. I mean, I'm, I'm picking on you, anonymous, whoever you are, but you get the point, and exactly Kevin's yeah. point as well. What's a crime here? Yeah, and uh, you, you should not pull out your gun and confront them um, if they're committing a property crime, such as burglary or vandalism or something like that. Absolutely not. Um, if you pull into your property and you see that what appears to be an armed kidnapping or something like that, maybe you want to get involved if that's your child being dragged across the, the front yard. Um, there are a lot of variables on this one. Um, I'm, I'm always of a fan to call 911 and, and let the police come and sort it out. Um, and calling 911 first and early is always a good plan because then the cavalry is already on the way. So um, if you're getting involved in a situation after that, at least you know somebody might show up eventually to help you. Right. I mean, Kevin put his finger right perfectly in the pulse of the variables here. Is this a people thing or a stuff thing? If it's a, if it's a stuff thing, forget about it. Back off, uh, call 911, be a good witness if you feel safe to do so. In other words, you know, being a good visual eyesight of them, taking out a license plate if they've got one and so forth. If it's a people thing, we're back to the situation we've been talking about today, which is, look, if it's someone that you're willing and want to intervene within the scope of the law, understanding that there's both physical and legal risks for you to do so, physical insofar as maybe the guy has a gun, don't assume you're going to win the gunfight. Mm -hmm. Hate to say it. Um, number two is, all right, so the legal ramifications of who knows what's going to come out as far as the evidence, how that's going to be depicted in court, and who knows which prosecutor you have. And I, again... I'm not trying to talk you out of trying to save some child's life or anything like that. What I do want you to do is identify the variables so you can think and act for yourself intelligently and knowingly. Yeah, go into this with as much information as you can possibly gather before it happens. And, and that'll make your decision-making process a little bit easier as well. So, all right, uh, next one. Travis wants to know, if I'm in another state that honors my concealed carry permit, how should I handle a situation where I have to draw my weapon? Uh, same as you would in your home state. Travis, should we go on? <laughs> Follow the laws. That's, that's basically it. Um, yeah, and uh, honestly, what we will tell everyone, if you have to draw your weapon, make sure you are the one calling 911. Um, you know, if you survive the encounter and you are uninjured, or if you're injured and you have to call 911, um, you want to act exactly as you would in your home state. Follow the, the laws to the letter. If you're carrying in a state with reciprocity, you better know the laws of that state. Right. Are they a duty to retreat? Do they have standard ground? Do they have a soft duty to retreat? Soft duty to retreat meaning that sometimes a jury is instructed to think about do they have a duty to retreat, even though legally there may not be a duty to retreat. Uh, that's, that's a soft duty to retreat. All right. Another anonymous question. Are you best to shoot to kill or just wound for a later arrest? Um, no. Let's uh, put this uh, terminology to end again. Um, we're not shooting to kill. We are shooting to stop the threat. Um, you know, there's a good bumper sticker out there. I don't shoot to kill, I shoot to stay alive. Um, that's, that, that's what we're doing. Um, it is not our intention to kill anyone. Don't go telling the police that you wanted to kill someone. You're going to definitely need a lawyer then or definitely be meeting a prosecutor then as well. Um, you, you are shooting to stop the threat. You just simply wanted that person to stop what they're doing. So you shoot them until they stop the bad action and then you stop shooting them, and then you call 911. That's how it works. You're not thinking about, should I kill them? Should I shoot them in the leg? Should I do whatever? Doesn't matter where you shoot them. Shoot them until they stop committing the bad act, and then stop shooting them. Right, yeah, I mean, it's a false choice, because are you, are, are you best to shoot to kill or just wound for later? I mean, neither. 
right. exactly as Kevin said. Yeah, and, and any use of your firearm is deadly force. Even if you shot them in the toe, that, that is the use of deadly force. Right. So, Okay, Bob wants to know, in most jurisdictions, what determines if a self-defense shooting results in death of the attacker is justifiable and whether prosecution should be waived? You know about most jurisdictions, <laughs> jurisdictions, don't you? Right, so who, who determines that? People do, the prosecutors, law enforcement. Um, but keep in mind that police basically gather information, they investigate, they make arrests where necessary, and then they, they hand it up basically to the prosecutors. Um, that's the way it works in all the places I'm familiar with. Maybe yep. it works differently where you are, I tend to doubt it. So I guess to answer your direct question, the police will, will basically formulate everything. They'll certainly have their opinions. If it's a big case, they will certainly share them with the prosecutor. But ultimately, it's going to be the prosecutor's call as to whether or not to formally file criminal charges. Uh, and then from there, if they want to back off, if they want to amend them, prosecutors have an enormous amount of discretion within the criminal justice system. All right. So uh, things are moving very rapidly on the screen here. Uh, Greg wants to know, are some defensive rounds and calibers considered excessive by prosecutors? <laughs> I'm not being a prosecutor. I, yes. I don't know. Okay, I mean, yeah. So I've had prosecutors say that uh, all hollow point ammunition are cop killer bullets. No one should have them. Uh, I've also seen prosecutors say that, that full metal jacket uh, are military-grade ammunition, and nobody should have that, right? So we've pretty much eliminated reasonably all ammunition, just about. I mean, frangible and right. certain soft points and larger larger revolver calibers, we pretty much eliminated most useful ammunition that you're going to find. Um, so look, yeah, there, there's going to be certain things, but they kind of fall into crazy arguments that I think a good experienced criminal defense attorney or defense team should be able to push back on and get it thrown out um, versus other ones where it's like, yeah, you know, he was carrying that 50 caliber Desert Eagle um, when maybe he made a good shoot, maybe not, but they may try to use that to really color the jury's perceptions against you. Um, again, it's a gray area. At the end of the day, if you make a good shoot, you made a good shoot, but don't think that the prosecutor may try to get colorful or creative about trying to shape some of the other perceptions about you, your motivations for the shoot, and as a result, trying to chip away at how good of a shoot was that, in essence, by introducing extraneous variables. Good uh, prosecutors who understand what's going on, know what's doing, hopefully they should not do that, um, but those are, I did not make those up about all hollow point bullets should be banned because they're cop killer bullets, all full metal jacket uh, bullets are military grade and they should all be banned too. Those come from prosecutors that I have been in court and seen them say, all right, and I've got a whole, trust me, that rabbit hole goes deep, all right, um, so got to be careful about that. All right, let's move on. Travis wants to know, when engaging in defense of someone else, should you warn the attacker and give that person a chance to surrender? So, um, you know, the warning, um, what we call in, in police work a verbal challenge, is, is a good thing to do if you can and, and if it doesn't put you at a tactical advantage. Um, again, like Tom says, a good shoot is a good shoot is a good shoot. Um, there's no requirement that you have to say stop or I'll shoot. Um, that might give the person a chance to shoot at you before you can shoot at them. So, um, and again, we're, we're looking at this if you're defending someone else, what if you're defending yourself? Should you warn the attacker? Um, if you have the opportunity, yeah, and they give them, they take the chance to surrender or run away, good, then you don't have to shoot them. But if you don't have the opportunity or you don't have the time or for whatever reason you can't warn someone or, or offer a verbal challenge, no, you're not required to. All else being equal, I love it. You know, if you can shout, you know, 
don't move or something like that. Hopefully you're getting witnesses to see about the fact that this guy's busy attacking me. You're, you're creating beneficial facts, not only now in the physical encounter to hopefully diffuse that, make them run away, whatever, but you're also setting yourself up, hopefully, for some more beneficial facts in the legal encounter that may ensue, that may follow. So generally speaking, sure, but you may not be able to. All right, let's move on to John's question here. There are a few different types of defensive ammo. Uh, yeah, more than a few. Couple, couple. Um, is it best to stick with what law enforcement uses? How do you choose your ammo? Um, I don't know that it is best. It, it can be advisable, uh, especially if you have an adversarial prosecutor who is going to come at you about ammo. Right. Then you can say, yep, my local cops use this. But, um. and, and for what it's worth, you know, I and Kevin can speak to this probably a lot more than I can, but... I know some police departments and some sheriffs, uh, you know, some sheriff's departments over the years where you learn what they carry, and sometimes they don't even regulate. It's, yeah, buy what you want, right? Mm -hmm. um, other times they use something that's a little on the outdated side. Uh, maybe it was great 10 years ago and technology has moved on, uh, but the department hasn't. And other times they're using uh, really nice stuff. So, sure, if they're using really nice stuff, that's a great way to go. Um, and that's not necessarily, not, pardon, not necessarily what I'm locking myself into, but to mm -hmm. Kevin's point, yeah, it does give you a nice pushback on the adversarial prosecutor, um, but if it's junk ammo, I'm not going to use it. Right, and, and there's lots of good uh, um, tests that are going on out there that you can find online and, and see how the ammo performs and, and use that, and also it has to work well in your firearm, and it, quite frankly, you know, sometimes police agencies, they might not always be firearms experts, you know, um, when they're dealing with stuff. And, and we ran into that maybe a decade ago um, with a bad choice of ammo in an area where I was living at the time. Yeah. And it didn't work when the police officers finally had to use it. And they mm -hmm. ended up getting entirely new guns and ammo and, and wow. you know, um, um, changing the whole thing. So it wouldn't have been uh, um, smart, to f smart to follow their advice at that right. point. So, right. Um, Okay, moving on here. <coughs> I'm in a wheelchair about half the time, so I'm worried about my well-being every time I go out. I stay away from the bad places, good, but what should I do if I'm confronted? I mean, confronted about parking tickets? Uh, <laughs> I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to pick in you, so I'm, I'm assuming or I'm reading into this that there's some sort of uh, robbery or use of force or threat, threatened use mm -hmm. of force against you. Uh, at the end of the day, the laws are not going to be any different. However, where you draw that line may subjectively be a little bit different for you. Certainly if you're in a wheelchair, your duty to retreat is gonna be very minimal if any exists at all. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, a jury, hopefully a, you know, a judge as well, and for that matter, a prosecutor law enforcement are gonna understand that you may have to, you know, since your response time, the draw may be slower, may not be, depending upon how you have things set up, um, but it may be slower, it may be more difficult. So, Things are going to be different for you, and when you have to, to draw that line may be a little bit different for you. Um, so hopefully reasonable minds will see that, but the laws itself do not change. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why you will have to be able to articulate clearly that if you did use some sort of force, deadly force or otherwise, why you had to do that. That about sums it up. All right. I mean, yeah, it's not going to, the, the laws aren't going to change. You know, the level of force that you can use still has to be reasonable. So right. um, it's out there. Mike, um, don't give us your last name for this question, oh Mike. Boy. That's certain. Using your firearm at home while intoxicated, what charges could I face if I have to shoot in self-defense? Intoxicated possession of a firearm. Yeah. Uh, that one comes to mind here in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Possibly recklessly endangering safety, which is a felony. 
uh, or can be a felony. That's another one that comes to mind. How about homicide, depending upon how the facts are? And Mike, I'm not saying that, I'm assuming that you don't like to get drunk and shoot people. <laughs> I'm assuming that you were drinking, you were intoxicated, and then someone broke in. So yeah. in other words, you... you or, and are you, you know, I see using your firearm at home while intoxicated, um, what charges could I face? Are you in a place where you can legally use your firearm on your property? I mean, are you discharging a firearm within city limits or, or something like that? This is, um, there's a whole host of problems that can go here. So why don't we separate those two items? Don't use your firearm while intoxicated. Why don't we start with that right. and then go forward? Right, right. Um, but obviously, if, God forbid, if you've been celebrating New Year's or whatever the situation was, bad guy does break in, Surviving the encounter is going to be paramount. You certainly mm -hmm. didn't do yourself any favors by drinking, but we seem to be downstream of that decision at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, they're going to be taking a very hard, close look about what your memory of everything is. Your memory is going to be impeached in court. In other words, if you do have to testify, they're going to say, basically, and how many drinks did you have? Well, your, your, your breath alcohol concentration was a 0.16, so we're going to have this expert come up and testify about how hammered you were. So you're going to be a, an impaired witness, if you will, mm -hmm. um, and they're going to be taking an, an extra close look, as they always do, but an extra, extra close look at all the different facts, and they may not be necessarily buying off on everything that you're saying. And, and certainly your judgment will be in question, um, making sure that you made the right choice to use. Um, as, as Tom said, um, maybe you're at the, the family New Year's Eve party, and right. you've had several drinks, and, and you're clearly intoxicated, and then you decide that you need to use your gun to stop a threat. Um, your judgment will be questioned, so it, that just get ready for a long legal battle and, and right. lots of discussion about this. Right, right. So. I'm always telling Kevin to lay off those white wine spritzers, but yeah. does he listen? Yeah. <laughs> no laws when they got the claws. I, right? I, I am getting ticketed <laughs> so. driving out of here today. So. Dominic <laughs> says, is it illegal to shoot an intruder in the back while protecting yourself if the intruder is in your home? Well, Dominic, if you were watching about oh half hour or so ago, we talked about Castle Doctrine, and we specifically talked about what Castle Doctrine does, because since you said in your home, I assume that you're aware that, generally speaking, if you're facing deadly threat, you can use deadly force. Check your local listings on how the laws might be in your particular state. Many states have Castle Doctrine, which creates that legal presumption that you can use deadly force if certain triggering criteria have been met, such as breaking into your home. However, Presumptions are followed by that R word, rebuttable, meaning that, look, if you shot someone in their back while they're trying to run away, which is how I'm taking your question to be, that's that rebuttable part. So you could be going to prison for the rest of your life, or worse in certain mm -hmm. states, I guess. Um, so no, that's not a you're good to go situation. It could be very illegal, and in fact, it probably is very illegal to shoot. There are some odd examples where people charged at homeowners uh, uh, walking backwards or running backwards, mm -hmm. in, in essence, kind of daring them to shoot at, into their back. There's certain forensics that, that are out there that can, that can do a, a good job of distinguishing if you're in that situation versus a getting away situation. If they're running away, let them run away. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, shooting in the back is going to open up a whole can of worms for the investigation. And, and um, I attended classes at the Forest Science Institute there are some cases where people were justifiably shot in the back, but again, if this person is in your home pointing a gun at you and shooting over his shoulder as he walks down the hallway, 
you know, then maybe shooting him in the back is okay. If he's just flat running away from you, certainly not. So um, uh, I'm going to go fall back to one of Tom's phrases, it uh -oh. depends. Oh, it depends. It okay. depends. That's a good one. So, I've got other ones yeah, that, that not so yeah, PG. Yeah, so, okay. So, all right, Curtis, I live in California. I'm sorry, Curtis. Yeah. Because Lots of good real estate here in Wisconsin available. <laughs> um, I live in California, and they have gun-free zone laws that state you can't carry within 1,000 feet of any school. Yeah, they do. We have them here, too. Our city has schools about every three-quarters <laughs> of a mile, so when you map out the 1,000-foot range around each school, there are almost no streets within the city which could be legal to carry. How does one deal with that rule? Well, Curtis, it sounds like you're safe. You're in gun-free zones, man. Like, yeah. what do you got to worry about, right? <laughs> He's moving from gun-free zone yeah, to gun-free zone. Yeah, you're okay. So nothing's happening you're fine. In there. Don't worry about um, it. Yeah, and, and check your local laws to make sure about this, okay? The, the gun-free zone laws here in Wisconsin allow you to have your gun on your person and drop your kids off from school or drive past the school if you're not stopping and getting out of the vehicle or anything like that. So it is, again, a check your local listing situation there. And also call a realtor and find a, a really nice place outside of California. So. <laughs> or at least outside of that city. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great that you got schools every three quarters of a mile, though. That's, that's pretty You cool. got that going yeah. for you. Larry wants to know, what can we do as a group to continue to solidify our Second Amendment rights? Uh, Larry, um, educate yourself and vote. Great. Uh, be a good ambassador. Don't be the angry guy who says, in my opinion, don't be the angry guy that says, uh, you know, I have the Second Amendment right because I have the Second Amendment right. Talk to people. Why is this important? Um, how can firearms be used to save lives rather than take lives, which is kind of a lot, of a lot of the perceptions and talking points out there. So be the best ambassador that you can be. Um, be that level-headed person who's willing to sit down and, and reach across the aisle, so to speak, uh, with that aunt or uncle at, at around you know Turkey at the holidays, um, and then to Kevin's point, vote, vote, vote. Remember, early elections or pardon, um, local elections uh, tend to be where most of your rights get challenged or taken away. Believe it or not, that's according to some friends of mine who deal with constitutional law as a full-time practice, full-time law practice. They say the real problems happen at local levels. If you're pissed off at the federal government, check out what your local government's doing, right? So local elections, federal elections, everything matters. Vote, vote, vote. Get your friends to vote, too. All right. Uh, if you go to a protest and get caught with a concealed weapon, by whom, um, with a permit, can you get into really bad trouble? Um, you know, it depends on where you are and, and what you're doing and how did someone catch you with a concealed weapon if it was concealed and you had a permit, they have no business searching you. Right. Um, there's all sorts of things going on with here. Um, if, if you're at a protest and it's outside in a public place, um, are you legally allowed to carry a gun there? You know, first of all, you know, you're not right. on the Capitol grounds or anything like Don't that. That, that question is out there. Um, you're not going to get in any worse trouble because you're at a protest than if you were carrying the gun illegally somewhere else. Sure. And, and keep in mind that you know, there's, there's different types of protests. There's protests, at least within the last five or ten years or so, where it seems like this isn't a protest. Like, we all know there's going to be a fight. Um, and we've, there's been several examples of that. And there's other protests where, no, this is just a protest, and if some troublemakers come in, that's, that's a different situation. Uh, I would avoid the ones that are just clearly just a street brawl, and you knew that kind of go into it. Mm -hmm. There's been some examples, was that Oregon? Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, a couple, couple years ago where that was the case, avoid. Yeah, stay away. Um, all right, uh, looks like the final question we got here, Tom. A person comes upon someone being assaulted. 
and he loudly barks out, police, halt, or some other commands. Um, the one that concerns me is the word police, um, to try to get the situation under some type of control. And then the police get there and take control, but someone informs on them of your reported words, and you're not a police officer. Um, yeah, don't be identifying yourself as a police officer um, for any reason. Uh, you know, not even to try to break up a fight. Maybe what you were hollering was, help police, or, or something <laughs> like that. I, I, I don't know. Um, uh, word order matters. Sentence structure yeah. matters. Consult with your local fifth grade grammar teacher. Um, and then the question says, good, bad, or indifferent? Bad. Um, a person, yeah. a police officer, generally a felony in my experience. Um, so yeah, you, you took control of the situation at the expense of possibly six years prison and a $10,000 fine to go with your felony conviction. Um, maybe there was another way of controlling that situation. Uh, I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I mean, I appreciate the fact that I, I am. Um, but I'm not trying to be because I, I get the fact that this is, this is a common question that we see. Right. Or at least we see, we've seen this repeatedly. But it's, there, are, there are impersonating police officer laws in virtually every state, probably every state. Mm -hmm. And uh, prosecutors frown on that, to say the least. Yeah. And, and my question is here, you come upon someone who's being assaulted. Um, call 911 and get the cavalry on the way. Why do you want to be in that fight? Why do you, you know, it, it, maybe you're a good person and you just want to stop the fight, but uh, do not put yourself in danger for this couple of strangers who, for some reason, two knuckleheads are fighting. And keep in mind as well that if you're starting your engagement with these people and with law enforcement by clearly lying, um, you are impairing yourself or your ability to be a good witness later in court by doing that, never minding the legal consequences for the actual lie. In other words, the potential felony charges you're facing. If you're making yourself a bad witness, potentially. So I would not do that. All righty. Well, Tom, as my therapist says, our time is up. So thank you for being here. And what can our USCCA members do to help you out for being sure. here to give this great information <laughs> on the, uh, the monthly? Uh... So guys, something that, that allows me to be here um, is if you see the link below, and yes, this is a new link for you, Frequent Flyers. I realize that you know there, there's, there's different links. Um, Take a few moments, it's absolutely free. Click the link to, to give me a review or Google Grieve Law um, and just find one of our locations, as many as you want, as many as you're willing, and take a moment and leave us a review. It's gonna ask you to grade us on five stars, one to five, five being the best. This is the internet, so four is a failing grade basically. So if you feel like you got something out of this, some sort of nugget or kernel of something or other, um, I'd really ask you to just take a moment, leave us a five-star review. I do personally review and check all these myself. This is not some sort of marketing company. It's me personally who goes through and reviews all of these. I always respond to comments. I realize I'm a little bit behind on responding to some comments recently. Um, but guys, just take a moment from not only myself, my team back at the office, we all really appreciate it. It really means a lot to us. Not only business-wise does it help us with Google and all this other kind of stuff, but just personally, it's great to see the, the great feedback um, and it means that I, I know that I'm helping to make a difference. So thank you. Please take a few moments to leave that review. Well, thanks again, Tom, for being here. And folks, we will see you all next month when we do this again. Oh, and I know it's Divergent Family Law. That's our family law wing. So I appreciate that. It's actually us. It's our, it's our website, guys. Thank you.